0: Um, uh, do introductions and I don't think we have anyone on zoom yet. Okay, so we'll start to my right and make our way left.
1: Well, good afternoon. My name is Chris Hines. I serve on Denver City Council representing Denver's perfect 10.
2: Good afternoon, Amanda Sawyer, district five.
1: Good
3: afternoon, Joel Clark, district seven.
2: Good afternoon, Kendra Black, district four.
4: Good afternoon, Paul Cashman, South Denver,
5: district six. Robin Kenich, at large.
0: Thank you so much. Um, Love to bring up uh, Eric Browning from Community Planning and Development. And Eric, we do have um, Sean Denniston and Mel Yama right now on uh, Zoom if we need to pull them in as well as look like Nick Jacobs. So, but we'd love to turn it over to you if you do an intro and then get started.
4: Great, thank you very much. Good afternoon. Again, my name is Eric Browning. I'm the chief building official in Community Planning and Development. And today we'd like to provide a presentation uh, as was uh, requested by members of um, the Land Use Transportation Infrastructure Committee uh, way back on December 20th, focused specifically today on residential electrification. And I'm going to go through some introductory uh, information, and then we'll turn it over to a number of subject matter experts that we've gathered to present information to this committee for further consideration. It's really important to lay the groundwork when we're talking about residential with respect to today's presentation. We are talking about buildings that are regulated by the Denver Residential Code. And generally these are going to be your small residential buildings, single family or one family, duplex or two family, and what are referred to as townhomes or row homes, which are three or more attached dwelling units. But in particular, it's important to note that we're not talking about larger residential buildings. We're not talking about uh, condominiums or apartments, whether they're for sale or for rent. The large buildings that might be regulated under the commercial code is not part of today's presentation uh, or, or conversation when we're considering the information coming for you today. Let's talk about for a moment what's already in Denver's residential code around electrification. In a few different sections, we have language for electrical vehicle ready spaces that includes requirements for infrastructure, such as dedicated and labeled panel spaces, conduits, receptacles, and wiring. We have requirements for infrastructure for both furnaces, water heaters, ranges, and dryers. So here we're talking about space heating, we're talking about water heating, and then we're talking about the infrastructure so that if there is a fuel-fired or a gas-fired appliance installed, um, that the electric infrastructure would also be installed in parallel so that in the future, it would be very easy to switch from a gas to an electric appliance. And then finally, we have information regarding solar-ready zones. And numerically speaking, for each unit, roughly 300 square foot uh, of area dedicated on the roof for uh, future solar installation, should the owner wish to do that. It needs to have dedicated and labeled space in the electrical panel. And of course the roof needs to be free of obstructions uh, and shading. When we talk about residential electrification, there are a number of different components that we have to consider. You'll hear from a number of subject matter experts from all over the country uh, and a number here, right here in Denver and in Colorado. When we look at the electrification conversation from a regulatory perspective, um, it's important to think of things about like cost to electrify. Generally speaking, we know that it's going to be more efficient from a financial perspective to electrify new homes than it is to go into retrofit existing construction. We know that incentivization uh, can provide opportunities for adoption and that if we consider phasing of electric requirements, looking at incentivization ahead of mandatory requirements um, usually helps communities come up to speed, all of the different players that are involved in electric infrastructure come on board, whether we're talking to suppliers, we're talking knowledgeable contractors, and we're talking the owners and end and users, et cetera. Um, with respect to our current regulations, as we talked about back in December in, in Ludi, There are some limited existing regulations in our codes now. And if we are to make changes in our codes, there is a fairly robust effort that needs to happen in order for us to make changes. The reason it's more complicated than simply adding mandatory electric uh, language to our codes is because there are a number of provisions that already provide credits, maybe from an energy code compliance perspective for electric buildings and we would need to go back in and edit those we would need to ensure that there's not um, double dipping so to speak so that someone isn't getting credit for building an all-electric building and then also getting credit on the energy side for building an all-electric building um so there's there's work that has to be done within our existing codes if we're to look at making these changes in the future and then um finally again we want to make sure that we consider uh, not just the costs. We want to look at this from an equity perspective. And as I mentioned, uh, from the existing home perspective, as we look to the future, understanding that the implications around electrifying existing infrastructure um, is far more challenging than both. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Sean Denniston. He is virtual and he is with the New Buildings Institute.
6: Thank you, Eric. And thanks for this opportunity to address the body. My name is Sean Denniston. I'm a senior project manager with New Buildings Institute. We've been assisting Denver for the last several years on code development. And I've been asked to give a little bit of background on how electrification fits into adopting policies since we work nationally and we can bring that perspective. I think it is best to start with looking at how Denver homes actually use um, natural gas. So if you look on the left, you'll see this is a breakdown of single family homes where the energy use in those homes is 33% electricity, 67% national ga- natural gas. Now, if we look at the gas usage, uh, the breakdown of how that gas is used in single family homes in Denver, it's about 67% space heating, 30% water heating, and then 3% other uses. This would be cooking and decorative fireplaces, things like that these are very typical breakdowns that we would expect to see in a climate like denver's so there's really nothing that stands out here but when we look at this in single-family homes and if you can go to the next slide you can see why a lot of jurisdictions like denver are beginning to look at natural gas usage versus electricity use and how that fits and can support their climate plans So what this graph shows is the emissions that are related to both electricity and natural gas over time. Uh, Excels grid is decarbonizing over the next couple of decades. And so you can see the carbon emissions from electricity use is falling. But the carbon emissions from onsite combustion of natural gas, regardless of the source, are going to remain about the same. Next slide. But when we think about Uh, the usage of natural gas in buildings, it's not actually just about the carbon. It's also about methane. And so natural gas is mostly methane. And methane has about 80 times the climate impact of CO2. And if we look at the use of of natural gas in our buildings, 6% of our total methane emissions come from our distribution system. So this is the mains and the pipes and what's in the buildings. 15, So, and that's just pure leakage, that's not actually usage, that's just leaking out of our system. So 50% of those distribution losses come from the mains, the big pipes in the ground, but 27% of those distribution losses are coming from the buildings themselves. So if you think about how much pipe is in a building versus how much pipe is in the ground, you can see that we have a disproportionate amount of those leakage actually coming from the ground, from the buildings. And so this is why so many jurisdictions are looking to electrification. Next. And I know sometimes it might feel like it's Denver and a bunch of places in California. Um, But if you go to the next slide, that's not actually the case. Jurisdictions all over the country, including states, are looking at various kinds of electrification policies to pursue their decarbonization and climate goals. And if you look at the dots on this map, one of the things that you'll notice is it's actually a lot of cold climates like Denver. So this isn't just a California warm climate thing. It's not just a mild climate thing. This is something that has been enacted in cold climates as well. And if we can go to the next. And I'd like to focus in on Washington. And I think because there are some lessons that are relevant to Denver. Next. So why Washington? Well, first, Washington has ambitious climate goals like Denver has Um, Eastern Washington is a very similar climate to Denver. These are both they're called it's called climate zone five B, that kind of light green area. And so the climate characteristics while not identical. They are very similar cold dry and the Washington codes are based on the family of codes that come from the International Code Council, just like Denver's are And so even though both jurisdictions have made modifications to suit their own local needs, we have that common basis for both of them. Next. And when we look at how Washington has addressed this issue, they've really focused in on heat pumps. So in the 2021 commercial code, even though we're talking about residential, but just for a little bit of context, heat pumps are required for all of space heating and they're required for 50% of the water heating capacity. So that means 50% of the hot water in the buildings has to come from heat pumps instead of from other sources. In residential, you'll note that its heat pumps are required for space and water heating in single family homes. Note that the residential code for single families is ahead of the commercial code. And this is generally because the kinds of systems that are typical in single family homes are the easiest, most straightforward system to use with heat pumps and to electrify. Next. So this isn't the first thing that Washington has done to promote the adoption of heat pumps and to uh, uh, promote the adoption of electrification. Their energy code is called the Washington State Energy Code. And if we look at the old edition, the 2018 edition, um, we can see that it has long had uh, a mechanism to promote the use of heat pumps. The residential code has a section where you have to pick from a series of credits and in, in order to meet the code. Denver has a very similar setup in both its 2019 and 22 codes. If you go to the next slide, normally this, in other jurisdictions, this table of credits that you have to select from are just energy efficiency measures. But what Washington has done that is different is that it has a set of credits that are based on the kind of equipment that you use. So if you look at number one, combustion equipment, you know, your, your gas furnaces and things like that, you get zero credits for. But if you look at the next line, if you have a heat pump system, you get one credit toward your credit target goal and if you look at number three electric resistance you get negative one and some variations on that basic theme this has had a substantial impact on the adoption of heat pumps in washington if you can go to the next slide please so according to a study by the northwest energy efficiency alliance that's kind of like the Southwest Energy Efficiency Partnership uh, that's here in Colorado. It's the version that's in the Northwest. The 2015 edition of the code saw about 20% of space heating from heat pumps and 80%, almost 80% from gas combustion. But once the new code get, went in with this, um, this part of the code that was meant to encourage the adoption of heat pumps, it went to 88% use of heat pumps and only 12% of combustion heating. And this is just due to what an easy credit or what a straightforward credit it was for projects. If you go to the next slide, we saw a similar story with water heating. So beforehand, there was more wider adoption of heat pumps and electric water heating, 37% before this Um, This encouragement went into the code, but afterwards, 83% went to heat pumps. What this shows is that in Washington, a very, very rapid uptake of heat pump technology. And this makes a lot of sense. The technology is robust and it's well-established, and the design and installation processes are also robust and well-established. So it was really just a matter of the state making that transition it can be done rapidly as the Washington example uh, shows us. And next, and that's what I have. Thank you very much for taking the time and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.
2: Next up we have uh, Mel Yama. from
0: She's virtual as well. Great, Mel Yama, you can advance in for the next section.
7: All right. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Mel Yemma. I'm the Long Range Planner for the Town of Crested Butte. Um, Thank you so much for having us today. It's such an honor um, to speak to the City of Denver um, from four hours away. And we're here to talk about the Crested Butte case study for all electric building codes. And you could go to the next slide, please. Um, So to kick off with kind of the foundation and taking a step back of why did we enact an all-electric building code and how did we go about adopting our new building code last year, was back in 2019, the town of Crested Butte updated and created a new climate action plan, which sets some short-term and long-term goals around reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and working towards becoming a net-zero community. And within that plan, there is a specific chapter around our opportunities um, around building energy use, which really set the groundwork of saying, next time we go about adopting our new building codes, we need to look at um, above code standards, as well as consider an electrification policy. And this was a document that we kept referring back to as we went through our building code adoption process last year. So it was really helpful to have that foundation. Additionally, around the same time we set out to adopt our new building code, Um, Tri-State, who we are part of an electric co-op that purchases wholesale power from Tri-State They had their electric resource plan approved by the Public Utilities Commission, which committed them to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2030. And that was a really important impetus for the town to recognize that, okay, we know our grid is committed to getting cleaner. Now, as a local government, what is our role in kind of the levers we can pull to help improve our building efficiency and construction practices going forward to really seize that greener grid? next slide please um so the process we undertook to update our new building code we went into 2021 with our knowing we were going to adopt the new code in our work plan um, and kind of Previously, when we go about adopting our building code, which we have done every six years, it's really been a simple process of our building official researching what's changed. um, And then it's really just an adoption through ordinance that hasn't had much public involvement or interest. Um, But knowing that we were going into this with considering above code requirements or incentives or an electrification consideration, we knew we needed to set out a really transparent and um, community forward process to really give our community the opportunity to participate and set our council up for success in making a decision. So we started off um, last winter really spending some good time doing research and analysis, and we hired a local engineering firm, REG, to help us with this to research what were our above co-considerations, what were other towns and cities considering and doing, and really doing some modeling, too, of what could really help us meet our climate action goals, And REG was fantastic to work with because not only are they experts in modeling homes and um, doing that research, but they are really familiar with building in our climate and really had great experience with what could work well and what we would have challenges with. Um, From there, by May, we had a list of considerations for our building code that we wanted to go and vet with the public. So we first held a community meeting to talk about what are some things we're considering, what are some things we missed that maybe our community has ideas on, followed by a public comment period for folks to send in comments and feedback after that. And we took all that feedback and refined those considerations and vetted them with Um, a stakeholder committee of members of our building community and council and our design review and zoning board. Um, And then also, and then took all that feedback prior to going to our town council to work through the considerations through a work session. From there, we refined everything into a final recommendation and adopted the new building code through ordinance, which because of that process we had set up, just took two hearings. It was never continued and we had a very effective um, decision-making process. And we've now been um, effectively enforcing our new building code since this past January. So about two months now. Um, Next slide, please. So what did we adopt? I know today is the focus on residential code, so that's what I'll focus on. But what we adopted was for new residential construction, all new residential construction would have to be certified through the U.S. Department of Energy Zero Energy Ready Home Program, which also includes some solar-ready provisions. And that really sets up some um, above-code energy efficiency standards for new construction. We also had um, provisions around electric vehicle readiness, And then we did become the first in the state of Colorado to require that all new construction um, be electric and not hook up natural gas going forward. Um, And I know that today's focus is on electrification, but I wanted to hit on how, while that's a really important piece, we really saw how it's an important puzzle piece that goes with other elements of improving energy efficiency um, to really make sure we're reducing the energy use first and then the energy that is being used is electric and hooked up to that cleaner grid. Um, when it comes to remodels and renovations for level three remodels, so anything where 50% of the work area is being renovated, um, we are requiring homes to get a home energy assessment um, for them to be EV ready, electric vehicle ready, and then to be electric ready as well. Um, and then with that home energy assessment, the idea there is to kind of educate homeowners on as they're going in to maybe replace a window, they could see what other opportunities they have to reduce their energy usage. Um, So we wanted to kind of focus on education um, with remodels at this time. So next slide, please. So honing in on electrification for the rest of the presentation, I wanted to talk through kind of five big questions that our town council and our community grappled with to help make that decision and ultimate code adoption. Next slide, please. So first up is, does it work in this climate? And you're going to hear a presentation later from a heat pump expert talking all about the ins and outs of cold climate heat pumps. But this was something that was really helpful to work through with our town council, where we were really able to quickly get the beyond, it doesn't work here, where we saw great examples from higher end single family homes to Habitat for Humanity homes um, being built that were all electric and not necessarily even prescribing a heat pump. Some use different heating systems and they were all working really well and having the case study of um, it works in all these different types of scenarios was really helpful for our town council. Next slide, please. So next up, is electricity actually less carbon intensive than natural gas? And this could depend on where you live. It could could depend on where your electricity comes from. Um, And I feel like the tune on this has really changed in the past year. But the public perception, there was some public perception when we were working through this last year of why would you go electric now? It's worse than natural gas. And as Shauna talked about, when accounting for methane leak leakage in our natural gas system, we found that already today, um, going electric is less carbon intensive than a uh, home um, with natural gas. So what we did was we modeled a 3,000 square foot house in town as if it were meeting that zero energy home. Um certification. So knowing it already had those energy efficiency standards and modeled out kind of what are their greenhouse gas emissions, if they were all electric or if they're using natural gas, and really showing what does it look like on today's grid, showing that it's already less intensive to go all electric, um, showing what it would look like on today's grid with um, on-site solar, and then projecting out what it would look like in our 2030 grid, knowing we had that commitment from Tri-State and showing like we're already there today, but here's how it's really gonna be a lot less carbon intensive by 2030. Next slide, please. Um, so next up is, is it cost-effective? There is a lot out there and a lot of concerns of it's gonna be way more expensive to make people build all electric. And as already mentioned, it was really helpful to see how different types of homes from Habitat for Humanity, lower um, income homes to higher end homes, were all making it work on different budgets. And while it's really hard to answer the question, apples to apples of is it cost-effective because it so depends on what you're choosing to build. Um, We modeled that same 3000 square foot house and accounted for um, if you were to install a natural gas HVAC system versus all electric and also showing what rebates are available right now. And this was even before the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, So we know that there's gonna be some more rebates coming up. Um, And then also accounting for all the infrastructure to bring to the house. So if you need to run a gas pipe to your house, what sort of costs are there? And we found that with the rebates today, or at the time we were doing this, that there is already quite a significant amount of savings to go all electric from the start versus natural gas. And then we showed um, the annual energy costs as well, which we did find at the time of modeling that electric would be a little bit more expensive, but this was at a time when natural gas prices were very low. And we also talked through and worked through some data on how they fluctuate a lot. Um, But we also modeled out if that home were to install solar as well, there would be quite a bit more savings as well. Um, Next slide, please. Another big question that came up was, do we even have the capacity for it? Are we going to break our grid? And what if there's an outage? What are people going to do? Um, so I know Crestview View is quite a lot smaller than the city of Denver. We're one square mile. So we didn't really have concerns about breaking our grid. Our um, electric co-op was very open to the fact that we absolutely have capacity to handle this. But I wanted to hit on this in the sense that A lot of folks, even our um, unincorporated county surrounding us, they were worried that they would break the grid if they considered something like this. But it was important to remind our community and our council that we're not talking about a rapid shift to electrification overnight. We're talking about sort of incremental changes with new construction. So in Crested Butte, it's quite a different scale than Denver, but we're looking at a dozen new buildings a year. Um, So it's not like we're adding on thousands of new homes to our grid overnight, which was really helpful. To know, and then thinking through an outage: Are we going to have rolling blackouts, and how are people going to stay warm in our really cold winters, where we had multiple below twenty mornings this winter? Um, And it was really helpful to recognize that even today, with our modern code, today if we were to require um, have just our regular code, any modern boiler or natural gas system uses electricity for sensors and their pumps and how they function. Um, So if there's an outage, you're going to have trouble with a boiler or with a heat pump, Um, but recognizing that we're really putting that focus into making sure new homes are very energy efficient and have tight building envelopes, that they're really set up to weather a potential outage um, well. And then lastly, next slide please. Let's quickly talk about how's it going so far, has the sky fallen, Um, is no one building in Crested Butte anymore, and it's going really well so far. Overall, because of the process we ran and really making a decision that was aligned with our community's values and with our climate action plan, we really had a lot of positive reception to our new building code. I believe there was kind of one Facebook thread right after it was adopted with a couple angry comments, but after that, there really hasn't been much outcry. Um, and we've been getting great projects coming in this year. So we have projects coming in ranging from free market, single family homes, to affordable housing that the town is working on that has apartment buildings, duplexes, triplexes, and quads. We even had in the lower rendering here, um, a project coming through for affordable housing that a group at the school of students, of high school students designed to be all electric and they're gonna actually build it themselves this summer. And it was really helpful, too, that going into our new building code, we knew that a, we were working on a big affordable housing project this year. So it would be really helpful for us to work hand in hand with contractors and work through the hiccups and know there might be challenges, but know that we can overcome it and we can do it. And we're overall seeing it's working really well right now. Um, so that is it for me. And I am happy to stay on and answer any questions at the end. And thank you again. It's just such an honor to um, be here today. and. We're really excited to be represented as such a small town, but all of our towns and cities are working through and really passionate about climate action, so I think we have a lot we can learn from each other. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mel. I appreciate that. And we have a transition on presenter.
2: To uh, for the Colorado Energy Office.
0: Thank you.
8: Good afternoon, members of the council. My name is Keith. Hay. I'm the senior director of policy at the Colorado Energy Office. I'd like to thank you for the opportunity uh, to be with you today.
1: Um,
8: in speaking with the, the members of city staff, they asked me to share three things with you roughly uh, one is to look at where we are with the decarbonization of excels grid. We heard a little bit about that already. I'll share a little bit. Uh, Second, I'll share with you where the state is on building decarbonization policy and some of the work that we've been doing and how that uh, aligns with what you all are considering here. Uh, And then third, to share with you some insights on where we are with respect to some of the federal funds that may be coming through the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, Before uh, I get there, Um, I wanted to share with everyone who might be listening, the Colorado Energy Office is an executive office. We sit within the office of the governor uh, and the team that I oversee works in a number of different policy areas. So my staff works on building decarbonization, specifically the the development of model uh, green and low carbon building codes. Uh, We also oversee the state's benchmarking and building performance program which is for large commercial buildings fifty thousand square feet and over Uh, we also do legislative policy development uh, and a lot of my team dedicates their time to representing the administration before the air quality control commission and the public utilities commission so when we talk about building decarbonization policy we really cover it at the state level from the development in the legislature uh, to seeing it through to implementation in various regulatory proceedings uh, here at the state. You've already seen uh, this graph today, which represents where XL Energy is as a result of its most recent electric resource plan. Uh, what I'd like to share with you, in addition uh, to this graph, which represents the utilities' emissions based on its most recent plan, uh, is that as a result of the settlement uh, that led to this plan, XL Energy has actually committed. Uh, in its next plan to putting forward a modeling scenario that will show us if and how they are able to get to at least a 90% emissions reduction by the mid 2030s. And we're looking forward to seeing that. In addition, my staff right now is engaged in a study with the Sand Analytics out of Boulder uh, that will map out how as a state, uh, we are actually able to get to Governor Polis's commitment to 100% renewable energy by 2040. So I think your takeaway there really is that that the grid is getting greener, it's getting greener uh, rapidly. Um, I know that there's been some conversation uh, about whether or not we are able to actually meet uh, that green grid requirement and then to bring electrification onto the grid. And so I think it's worth noting uh, that this is something that uh, we contemplated uh, as a group of stakeholders and actually as a result of legislation The public utilities commission adopted rules around distribution system planning Uh, that is all of the poles and wires that you see here in the city of denver either running down our alleys or underground that directly serve our homes and businesses Uh, and so as we look at greening the grid and look at electrifying homes and businesses at the same time we really will be planning for what this transition needs to look like along those poles and wires. So it's, a, it's an important complement uh, to the work that we have been doing. Uh, this is just a snapshot uh, of what XL is planning to bring on uh, for resources as a result of that most recent plan. And I do wanna highlight, you see a bunch of gray bars there that show gas. Uh, important takeaway from this is that the Public Utilities Commission saw the same thing that you are seeing Uh, And what the commission uh, and all of the stakeholders supporting that decided to do was to say, let's hold off on building any gas in the last years of this electric resource plan. We'll come back and look at that the next time uh, because what we as a group of stakeholders in this proceeding represented to the commission was we think that we are in the midst of an incredible energy transition. that are going to bring a lot of new clean energy resources in the middle to latter part of this decade that may make it unnecessary to bring that gas online. So we may have, for example, geothermal energy resources, advanced nuclear resources, long duration storage, all of which could displace gas in the outer years of this resource plan. So again, the grid for XL is getting greener. Uh, and to the extent that there are any concerns about that, that's going to require additional gas capacity coming online. The commission's really looking at that and saying, we're gonna hold off because we think there are other alternatives So where is the state on beneficial electrification? Well, it is one of the things that we are looking at when we think about building decarbonization. Our building decarbonization strategy at the state level is really built off of a bill that was passed a couple of years ago uh, that set in place uh, first in the nation statutory requirements for gas utilities, here today, XL Energy, uh, to meet mid-decade and 2030 emissions reduction targets So Xcel Energy's gas utility is required to get to a 22% emissions reduction by 2030. The statute allows them to do that using beneficial electrification as one of the tools. It also allows them to use gas energy, uh, sorry, gas efficiency uh, as another, and really to think about the kinds of fuels that it is putting into the pipes that it uses to serve customers and to lower the intensity of the greenhouse gases for those sources into the pipes. Now, we're building on that. This year, we actually have a bill that we are working on at the General Assembly that would allow the state's gas utilities to go before the Public Utilities Commission and to petition the commission to provide heating as a service as opposed to gas as a commodity. And what that would allow is the utilities to then transition to providing thermal service, uh, not dissimilar to the steam loop service that you have here downtown Denver, but it would be sourced by ground source heat pumps, a a clean, efficient way to provide heating. Uh, We think that's an important part of the strategy for two reasons, Uh, for, well, I suppose three reasons. First, it really avoids building extra capacity and load onto the electrical grid. In other words, we can do clean heating without driving up our winter heat. Second, Uh, It really provides a transition pathway for the existing gas utilities to continue to provide service to customers, which for XL Energy, that's part of their business, but we have a number of gas utilities here in the state that are gas only, and those customers need a way to continue to get heat and be provided service. This provides that opportunity. And third is it really provides a transition pathway for the workers at the utility who have spent careers working on the gas system side of the business, being able to do geothermal heating and ground source heat pumps, provides those workers an opportunity uh, to continue working going forward. Now, all that said, the state does support and continues to support electrification of residences uh, as part of that strategy. Um, What's before you here are the results of the beneficial electrification study that we did a couple of years ago that showed that we can get to significant amounts of emissions reductions. I will say that this study was done before the Inflation Reduction Act and before the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, which I think have fundamentally changed the economics of electrification for many homeowners today. So coming then into where we are now building on that overall strategy, right? We have that three-pronged, soon to be four-pronged approach to meeting Building decarbonization. We have put together a steering committee of, of more than a dozen stakeholders uh, from utilities to industry representatives to home builders to environmental advocates and justice advocates as well as labor unions uh, to work together on a study that will assess what we are calling the fundamental question which really is what are the opportunities and what are the challenges in thinking about building decarbonization. How quickly and should we move? How quickly can we move? If we move too quickly, what are are the results of that? And so we anticipate that this study will be done by the end of this calendar year and will really help inform where we are on the, the overall decarbonization strategy and pathways. Now, again, we know electrification is going to be a key piece of that. We know that it makes sense today for new homes and new businesses to electrify out of the gate. That is the cheapest opportunity that they have in terms of heating their water and space conditioning, heating and cooling their residences. I think for us, it's really a question of when we look at all of the different buildings that that are heated and cooled in the state and the future of the utilities, what does that pathway and set of transitions look like? So then turning to the third topic, and I will say I'm here to answer questions. Where are we on federal funding? I'm not going to go through this chart. There's a lot of information here, a lot of details and I'm happy to answer questions. What we do know is that the state of Colorado as a whole will be getting at least $140 million in formula funds to help support low and moderate households in transitioning to electrification and reduced gas consumption. We are really waiting for the Department of Energy to give us guidance for how and when we will get those funds and how and when we will distribute those funds. Right now, we're anticipating that guidance sometime later this year with the expectation that we might be able to actually stand up programs and begin to get these funds out to people sometime closer to calendar year 24. So there is a lot of money coming uh, for some homes up to $14,000 per household for electrification, uh, but it is certainly not here today. Um, This represents some additional tax credits. This won't speak to the low and moderate income question. The tax credits are available to Coloradans today. Uh, One thing that we're waiting for some guidance on is whether or not these would be stackable uh, with other kinds of incentives, whether those be from the city of Denver or the utilities, Uh, but that really would be up to homeowners to pursue that question. We are certainly as the energy office looking for, for those answers as well. And I think with that, uh, I have finished what uh, I was here to present to you today, but I'm happy to answer questions later. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Keith. Um, As we transition, uh, we've got three more presenters and about 20 more slides and come on up and um, we'll just try to make sure that we leave some time for questions. So if we could wrap up all three by 2.30, that would be great.
2: Go ahead.
9: Ah, uh, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. My name is Sean Lamons. I'm a technical representative for Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Cooling Systems, Heating and Air Conditioning. But I really want to represent the industry today, uh, so I'm not going to be staying very brand agnostic. So thanks for your time, and also thank you for the comments from my industry friends and colleagues. Uh, so I want to talk about what heat pumps do, how they work. Heat pumps really move heat from where it is to where you want it, from where it is to where you want it to be. And so like an air conditioner moves heat out of the house in the summer, it can move heat into the house in the winter. These units use phase change. What that means is think about steam. Think about steam as a way to do extra work. As we heat up steam, there's a bunch of hidden heat, if you will, in that steam before it changes temperature to the next, uh, to 212, 213 degrees. Similarly, refrigerants use phase change in a heat pump. And really all it's doing is it's moving heat, it's collecting heat on the outside in the winter and delivering it inside. And that compressor and the expansion valves, they just manage the temperature and pressure of that refrigerant to capture and utilize that phase change technology. Now there's a distinction between standard heat pumps and cold climate heat pumps. And cold climate heat pumps really allow for this to happen in much lower temperatures. They are purpose built for cold temperatures that like we experience here in Colorado. So as you notice on the red line there, it's extending flat out to much lower temperatures, 100% capacity and on beyond that temperature as well. Uh, Whereas standard uh, heat pumps, which are often referred to as uh, heat pumps don't work in cold climates, really, that's about 80% of the industry, 80% of the product mix out there. So that's what most contractors or professionals, when they say they don't work in cold climates, they're speaking about a standard heat pump, not a cold climate heat pump. And so thinking about the right product for the project, here's a good example of uh, uh, a couple um, companies, Elephant Energy, which is, uh, does in uh in the city and county of denver as well as um midwest uh, appliance and HVAC, they work together to really educate and design and install heat pump systems in uh, homeowners uh for homes in the denver market denver market it's a great article uh you might want to check out and in fact i just listened to a, a radio um uh, story about heat pumps on a national basis on my way over here today so thinking about even more extreme uh, location like Fraser, Colorado. So stepping up in elevation, stepping down in temperature, these systems are happily keeping, sorry, keeping people very happy in their homes. The one on the left here, this homeowner, Joe, he told me personally, he's like, yeah, I've watched that thing operate at negative 30 degrees, it takes care of my house. The one on the right is a project that was new construction very high performance but the point is they were able to maintain net zero in fraser colorado without running back up heat this uh, next slide is down uh, near salida it's native colorado and this builder it is new construction but he works on retrofits as well and he utilizes cold climate heat pumps on a regular basis for all of his projects some people do worry about the costs of heating with electricity especially um, given times past when those prices have gone up substantially and electricity is more expensive to heat with but with a heat pump we now have the efficiency to compete on price with natural gas particularly now where we're seeing the volatility of natural gas uh, kind of working against the cost effectiveness mm-hmm. of, uh, of monthly uh, fuel costs the, the numbers on the right those are my january bills looking back three years You'll notice there's a lot going on in there but you'll notice I added a heat pump and then I added an EV. So at the bottom line there, I'm looking at lots of kilowatt hours but you have to keep in mind that I'm running my entire house. I'm heating my house and I'm running my car uh, for that price. What I wanna focus on is the volatility of price on the natural gas side versus the electric side. And looking on a national basis, These numbers are from the Air Conditioning, Heating and Refrigeration Institute, AHRI. These are AHRI numbers showing a dramatic increase, a dramatic uptick of heat pumps. And in the past couple of years, heat pumps have outsold furnaces nationally. And that trend is not going to be ending because a furnace cannot cool like an air conditioner, but a heat pump can. And so these roughly 14 million units that are shipped every year That's what a heat pump can do, and it will be taking over both air conditioning and heating roles over the next 10 to 20 years. So we've got lots of big changes ahead of us, and I like to reflect on past changes that we've seen, especially with the electrification of rural America, and where we were able to bring electricity from 10% of farms to 70% of farms across the United States during during World War II in 15 years, 14 to 15 years. This was a tremendous effort that was a folk, national focus, lots of time, money, resources and labor it took to do this while we're fighting in a, a, uh, an international war. There's a lot of work and I think that we can do it again. So my ask for the council here is please continue your clarity, your focus and rolling out these programs, set up businesses and professionals for a long-term plan so that they can position they can position their businesses to to take advantage not only of the the capital that's coming down from uh, um, from the uh, national uh, funding opportunities as well as local funding opportunities and the ability to train find train and and um, motivate their technicians to get out there get the knowledge and uh, be able to apply it properly as well as manufacturers and di- distributors to help us get the right product on the shelves if it's not readily available right now, it's going to be hard to be, make that transition or it's going to dramatically slow it down. Uh, so please help us reach those goals on your behalf. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Sean. Um, we've got Nick Jacobs up next from Diverge Homes. He's awesome. He's, he's on. Okay, he's virtual, so we'll transition to that.
10: Sure. Hi, everyone. How are you? My apologies for not being there in person. I wished I could be, but I have another appointment that I have to head to right afterward. Um, Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk. Um, I think that I'm here to discuss being a builder and going all electric. And I want to preface that by just kind of giving you this this short presentation that goes over the capital costs. I don't have a lot of operating cost data. I think that's pretty relevant easy to get and you have that from other people from what I've seen so far. What I wanna contribute today is how we are building all electric homes here in the Front Range. So we can start with slide one, that'd be great. Uh, Next slide. So we started out not as an all electric home builder. I was a very highly efficient builder building to the 2018 codes, but exceeding them in certain areas. And what our business was focused on was you know, efficient homes, rebuilding small towns, next slide. And then I'm a resident of Louisville and the fire hit. And what you see in this image here is the before and after. So there's not a single house left in that section of neighborhood. Most of our, my kids, friends, you know, about 20% of Louisville is, was lost their homes. When you count the number of residential homes that were destroyed. And so what happened for all of us was I went from being a builder and just like other builders who were doing different things, we all jumped in and tried to re and are working hard to rebuild our community. And that's how I got introduced to all electric home building. It was only through the Marshall Fire. Um, you want to switch over and to the next slide? And what I want to talk about is how we did go all electric. And not only because of this experience, we are not only building all electric, but we're going to in the Marshall Fire District, but we're going to build all electric for every home we ever do going forward. And the reason that we're going to do going to do that is what I hope to convey for you all today. So the biggest change that I think is uh, in terms of dollars and culture changed in the minds of people. And I was one of the people whose culture needed to change and who needed to get up to speed just like um, a few minutes ago, like from Mitsubishi, Sean had described his you know, most of us thought cold climate heat pumps didn't even exist, right? I, I, I thought I was pretty on the edge of technology, and I was very behind when it came to heat pumps. And I suspect that many other builders are in the same boat. And so it's really about getting the word out. But the biggest changes that I have documented and seen are in these four areas in my slide. So it's your mechanical systems, meaning your air cooling and water cooling. Oh, you can go back to the next one. Uh, Do you mind going back real quick? Yeah. So it's your mechanicals and electrical systems, of course, your induction range, and I can talk a little bit about that, and then the solar PV. But to be frank, where there was very little cost change, and this is so important for new construction and new builders to know this, and for city people who are thinking about these ordinances, there really isn't that much of a change, if any at all, related to your foundation, your framing techniques, the insulation of the house, the lighting in the and the plumbing in general for for water. And then there's, you know, 35 plus other categories that just have no change whatsoever to them. So going all electric is in these four big pieces here. And next slide. So I broke them down and I wanted to do a quick comparison for you. So for us, the air source heat pump to do cooling and heating, we've seen that as a cost increase of about $13,000 to $14,000 per home. And that's for one system apiece. In the plumbing area, it's really not that big of a difference. It's only about a thousand dollar increase in general because the extra cost it is for an air sourced heat pump, which could be $2,500 compared to an $800 gas water heater. Even if that water heater is 98 or 96% efficient, let's say it's $1,200. Um, the cost the extra 1000 or 1500 dollars we would pay for an air sourced heat pump and the extra energy it takes to run that to to do all of that construction work and that services you're actually saving by not bringing in black pipe into the house black pipe is that metal pipe in which gas is brought is used to distribute gas into someone's home so we call it black pipe and that is that's so it's almost like a wash right i put a thousand dollars in there just to of have an extra dollar but depending on the size of the house that could be a wash at a zero. Um, The service upgrade for service panels is about $2,500 but in many cases that's not going to be applicable when you're doing new construction because you just bring in that service new from the beginning. That's more like a retrofit and then to be frank, The next row is really where we need to go, which is with the electric smart panels, where we're distributing panel using uh, a computer-based system that properly, um, you know, can distribute power throughout the house without having to have all these circuit panels and power coming into the house that's not used on a daily basis. So then the other pieces are the avoidance of gas infrastructure. Currently today, Excel charges about $600 to $700 a unit for new construction development when we're doing new gas services to a neighborhood. Um, and then on top of that, there's the cost to bring in gas to a meter to the house, which would be a separate cost I didn't have in And then the last piece is the induction range. Um, the induction range can be anywhere from four or $500 of a- additional cost, which is very meaningful for a lot of people or to the more Wolf Thermador higher end ranges, which really are only about two to $3,000 more at the very highest end. So overall we saw a cost increase of anywhere from seventeen five dollars to about $25,000 to perform uh, to have a house perform at an all electric level. Our homes meet Energy Star version 3.2. They are zero energy ready homes, but they have what's in, an even higher standard, which is called next generation all electric. Um, and with that, if you want to go to the next slide. So what happened was, I don't know if folks are familiar, but the Marshall Fire incentives really proved for people like me that the, that the carrot was far muddier than the stick. Those incentives total $27,500. And it's actually less costly for a Marshall Fire homeowner who's trying to rebuild their house to do an all electric home than it is for them to do a gas home. And the, the benefits of that all electric house are so much higher when it comes to air quality, indoor air quality, overall energy performance, which you've seen from other people today. It is just, you know, as a guy who's been building for a very long time, to know that this was out there, I'm embarrassed to tell you how little I knew about it. And I, if there's anything that I can impress upon people is that knowledge is power. And when builders like us see this, and then there are some incentives that are brought in to take that seventeen five dollars to $25,000 cost and bring it down, that is just a phenomenal incentive for people to go after if you're new construction. Next slide. I don't have anything more to add. I hope that it was helpful and I'll definitely be here for Q&A to answer any questions you may have. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Nick. Um, we have our final presenter, Jim. Uh, Jim Crooks from National Jewish Health, thank you for joining
11: us. All right, thank you so much for uh, having me speak to you today. I'm a research scientist at National Jewish Health, and I do research on air pollution and its health implications. I'm gonna be talking to you today about the health implications of the gas appliances many of us have in our homes currently. Most of the research has been done specifically on kitchen appliances, especially stoves. So that's most of what I'm gonna be talking about, but I think the logic extends to other appliances as well. I just want to remind you that the gas we use in our appliances is pollution, okay? So most of it is methane. That is a climate pollutant, one of the strongest ones that we know about. But the gas also contains other kinds of uh, pollutants in it as well that have health implications. Things like benzene that cause cancer, as well as uh, numerous other gases with long complicated names that are classified as air toxics by the EPA. When we burn the methane to heat heat up our water or whatnot, Um, It produces carbon dioxide, again, a climate pollutant, as well as other gases that have health implications. So things like nitrogen dioxide, which causes exacerbations of COPD and asthma and emphysema, and a gas like carbon monoxide that we know starves the brain of oxygen when we breathe. So what do we know about the stoves? Well, stoves are sort of constantly emitting low levels of these polluting gases. We know this from a study that was done in California in the past couple of years that studied 60 plus homes in California. And they found that these stoves were emitting methane basically all of the time, even when they were turned off. Over a 24 hour period, fully three quarters of all the methane uh, that was produced was emitted when the stove shouldn't be producing anything at all because it's in the offsetting. And if you take the overall methane emissions that we calculated from those homes and sort of simply extrapolate them to the whole country this group was estimating that gas stoves across the country have the same carbon footprint as 500,000 cars. In addition, uh, those leaks also have health implications because during the cooking time, uh, when you know you're you're producing nitrogen oxides, it was producing enough to violate what would be EPA standards outdoors. So, if these folks, you know, if their kitchen was the outside, they would have levels of uh, nitrogen dioxide pollution that was illegal. And we know that this is not the same for homes that don't have gas appliances. So this study here was comparing uh, subsidized housing units in New York City, comparing units that had gas appliances to those that don't. And they found that the nitrogen dioxide uh, concentrations in kitchens with gas stoves was sometimes, was on average almost three times higher than those without gas stoves. Um, And that were sort of routinely in violation of these EPA outdoor standards, which are shown here, the yellow horizontal line. Now that's over the hour uh, of cooking, um, but if you even average over 24 hours when the stove is off, we still get significantly higher nitrogen dioxide levels on average in the homes with gas appliances. And this has real health implications. Um, This meta-analysis of eight other studies found that having gas appliances in the home, not even looking at you know whether how much it was used, but just having the gas appliances in the home was associated with a 30% higher risk of asthma in children living in the homes with the gas appliances compared to those living in homes without gas appliances. That's a big difference. 32% is a big difference. We can also kind of turn these numbers around and say, well, what does that mean? If we look at all the people in the United States who have asthma, how many of those asthma cases are attributable back to gas appliances? A study that came out a couple of months ago that got a lot of press back in January, estimated about 12% of all the asthma cases in children in the United States can be attributed back to gas appliances. The estimate's a little lower in Colorado, but still over 10%. And folks will often say, well, obviously we need to just ventilate the kitchen. Yeah, of course, that is definitely helpful. We should be ventilating kitchens if we can. Um, That helps reduce the air pollution exposure that people get. But there are caveats to that. They are Ventilation does nothing about the greenhouse gas emissions because whether you're, you know, putting the carbon dioxide into your kitchen or you're ventilating it outside, it's eventually going to get outside and cause the climate to warm. Second, not every kitchen has a ventilation fan, particularly older ones. Third, not every kitchen fan effectively ventilates. There can be a fan that just sort of mixes the air up in the kitchen but doesn't actually get it outdoors effectively. And fourth, People often don't run their ventilation fan or don't think about it. Even I only run it maybe two thirds of the time. And I clearly hear about this topic lot, right? So many people aren't running them. Finally, like some pollution is released when the stove is even off as we saw. Um, so you're not probably running your ventilation fan like 24 hours a day, right? And finally, kitchen ventilation is only gonna help in the kitchen. So if you have a utility closet or a basement that has uh, other appliances that run on gas, those appliances can be leaking uh, pollution into your house as well, but are probably not effectively ventilated. And thank you. And I'll be happy to take questions afterwards.
0: Thank you so much, Jim. Um, that concludes our slides. I wanna open it up for our council members um, with questions. We've got Councilwoman Black in the queue.
2: Thank you, Madam President. Thank you everyone for the presentation. I really learned a lot and I have a lot of questions. So I'm gonna go in the or- reverse order. So um, National Jewish, Jim Crooks, I have a question for you. Um, That's your report was very alarming. And I'm curious about gas fireplaces. You didn't mention them, but so many people are putting them in their houses. You can't put a wood fireplace in Denver anymore. People are putting them in their yards. I know, you know, at the airport, when when they're updating our airport, they're putting gas Fireplaces in the airport, which I found shocking that we would be doing that in our city. And there are some fireplaces that are covered with glass, but I know, like in my own home, it just opens up like it's a, like I would put wood in it. And how do those, at that, that seems like that'd be particularly dangerous if you're having like a giant flame in your house and it must also leak a lot because the pilot light's always on.
11: So to my knowledge, there hasn't been a lot of research specifically on gas fireplaces. I imagine a lot of the things that I've been talking about for gas stoves and other things would also apply to those, possibly even more so Mm -hmm. because the flame is larger. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I don't think there's been a a whole lot of research on that topic. Okay,
2: great. Thank you. Um, Okay, and then I have a question um, about the heat pump. Do they just use your ducts? Is it like, does it function like forced air heating and air conditioning? Yes. <laughs>
10: yes. Hey, this is Nick, if you can hear me.
2: Yes, go Although ahead, My, Nick.
9: my friend, calling, go ahead.
10: Sure. So this is Nick Jacobs. Yes, that is, that was one of the big surprises for me because they are, the, the new systems, these cold climate heat pumps, they look just like your standard gas furnace in the basement, and then the air conditioning unit, the old-fashioned air condensers, not even old-fashioned, the ones we use today, they look exactly the same in many ways. The air handler that's inside uses air to, and, and a fan to blow air throughout the house, and when it gets down to a certain temperature, there's a little electric coil that is down there that augments the heat pump itself when it can't make as much energy through the pump It uses an electric coil to heat up and then you move that air, the heated air through the home. So it was very surprising for me as well. And I'm a builder, so please don't feel like you guys need to know this stuff immediately and be, you know, not, not be surprised by some of how obviously simple a lot of this is. And then to answer your other question, um, regarding the gas fireplaces, I have a lot of clients who are doing all electric homes for the Marshall Fire. We have about 14, and every single client wants that gas fireplace or that gas barbecue outside. And it is not helping our environment to do that, um, even if it doesn't really have an impact on their indoor air quality. But it does what I have found successful, and this is just anecdotal information from me is that the new electric fireplaces are actually really cool and the technology for an electric fireplace is really neat and it's only getting better and so I've, I've convinced out of my 14 I've got three who are going to do an electric fireplace now which I'm really proud about. And it's just a matter of getting people to understand that there's there's really cool options out there instead that are that look a lot like fire, but they're electric and they can have rainbow colored lights and a little bit of a disco party atmosphere when you're having a party. And they still give out heat; it's electric based heat, and it still looks like fire. So it's kind of a neat neat solution.
9: One thing to add to the uh, to the new versus existing home piece is that you can easily most of the products that we carry and sell are retrofit ready right that is the, the dominant market uh for us for sure
2: so in a in a home that um has um hot water heat and does not have air conditioning this wouldn't work they'd have to put ducks in their house
9: Not necessarily there are uh, air to water systems, there are also um, Mm. ground source systems that can provide uh, using basically the ground as the source of heat, uh, the consistent source of heat, and then providing either warm air or warm water for the heating and uh, space heating as well as domestic hot water that's those all the technology is is out and uh, ready to go these days.
2: Interesting. Okay, thank you. And then I just had a question about the geothermal that you mentioned um sorry i don't remember your name Um, how how i know we had the steam plant down here in downtown denver but not too long ago we had a presentation about how much more costly that energy was and so how how does it work i don't really understand i know i there's a house in my neighborhood and they Drilled down deep and they have geothermal, but how does that work for a homeowner or a property owner?
8: So excellent question. And and the purpose of referencing the steam system here is that it's a common loop system that serves a number of buildings. And that is a model uh, that you could use with geothermal. So as your neighbor did, you can drill down and serve one home with one geothermal system. Uh, and that that presents an opportunity for that particular homeowner. Uh, as we are looking at legislation this year, we are interested in the potential for utilities to bring forward uh, thermal energy developments, mm-hmm. and I think for them uh, it might look like a slightly different model that looks a lot more like the the steam system here. That is a common loop system that serves a number of different buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that be you know you could imagine, for example, they might come down and put something in the street and serve all the the. Mm-hmm homes on that particular street, or if there's a new development going in, they may be able to work with the developer in advance of that level of development to put in a common set of uh, wells that they would serve. Uh, There are challenges with the steam loop system here and I'd be happy to talk about that, but uh, maybe at a different meeting.
2: Okay, well, thank you, that helps. Thank you very much. And then I have one quick question from Sean, who was talking about Washington State. I don't know if you're still here, Sean. I am. So you um, showed these um, bar graphs of 2015 versus 2018 and it says permit data 178. So where you showed there's an 80%, 88% using space heating and water heating. Is that just 88% of 178 cases of people applying for a new permit or can you just clarify that data please?
6: Sure. So the, it's, yes, it's, it's a count from drawn from permit data, and it is of 178 drawn permits.
2: Okay. So it's, I just, it, when I first looked at it, I was like, wow, 88% of the homes have switched to uh, different kind of heat, but that's not the case. It's just new. No, these are,
6: yes, this, so it's a representative sample of new construction. Okay. Okay. Um, Mm-hmm. thank you yes
2: that's all i have madam president
0: great thank you uh councilman Hines.
6: thank you
1: council president um uh, i want to thank the city of crested butte for their presentation i have been to crested butte multiple times for the adaptive support center uh so thanks uh, thanks for having that um also uh mr hay from the colorado energy office thank you um i've worked with the colorado energy office uh um quite a bit about uh, in the colorado electric vehicle Coalition. About access to EV charging stations, uh, particularly for people with disabilities. So, um, so while we started moving forward with regular or, uh, building code changes here in the city of Denver, those started at a uh, conversation at the state level. So, thank you uh, for being here. Um, I uh, one of the so Mr. Jacobs talked about how it's cheaper to build an all-electric home than a gas home. And, uh, and Mr. Crooks of National Jewish, by the way, in District 10. So thank you for uh, uh, thank you for being here. Um, uh, Mr. Crooks of National Jewish Health said, gas stoves are em- pollutants with health implications and they leak methane even when not in use. So um, I-, I know that my constituents keep asking me why we wouldn't re- require electrification on new residential installations. Um, certainly we'd want to have there to be a... Um, uh, time period between when we uh, didn't and then did require new uh, uh, residential installations have uh, fully electric um, uh, uh, code but I'm just curious is there is there I, I don't believe right now we are requiring new electric installations and so I, I just uh, it would be interesting to hear what the um, what the holdup is so to speak and and perhaps there are some good reasons I just don't know what they are
4: you're correct sir there is not a code requirement for all electric new residential homes at this time and the purpose of this conversation and presentation as a follow-up to ludi back in december was to explore that possibility
1: and so so the so we're just saying we're exploring it is that
4: that's correct it's my understanding that the intent of today's briefing was was just that a briefing
1: oh great so we could at this point explore um requiring electric uh you know as of maybe 2024 uh, all new residential construction be all electric and and have that conversation right now
0: i'm um, the purpose of you well, you can ask questions i think and, and arrive at that but um I think the actual, like a legislative path would need to be sure. okay. a future conversation.
1: Um, and then, uh, yeah,
0: uh, the only other
1: question that I had and, and I'll just uh, kind of leave that there for this, this moment, but um, uh, well, wh- why wouldn't we want to, uh, or why would we want to preserve a um, uh, I, I gas path in new residential construction? It's,
4: it's a great question. I think that there's opportunities um, to explore the electrification. That's, that's truly why we're here, for, for the city to collaborate, to identify what the most appropriate path forward is with all of the information. And, and some of what we've heard today is very sound information from the subject matter experts.
1: Yeah, and, I, and I'm sorry, I'm asking you the question because you're the building official, but also because you happen to be at the podium. Is there anyone else in the audience who might have a uh, a reason? Yep, go, go, and I'm asking to ask. I'm not asking to, uh, I mean, I, I wanna make informed decisions. So that's that's why I'm asking.
9: Sure, just to, uh, again, my name is Sean. Um, just to offer some counterpoint on that. Mm-hmm. The objections that I run into in the field and in the industry is is really people that are stuck in the status quo um, feeling concerned about uh, these major changes all at once right now. Uh, and, And that is a I think a very legitimate concern. And so finding that trajectory, finding that pathway that makes the most sense to get there as reasonably fast as possible. To meet the significant challenges that we have ahead of us as society, so that is about training. It's about availability of product. It's about it's about um, the change in how homeowners or users of the equipment or the homes um, perceive these differences. Right, this difference in how does what does the air difference feel like? What does the water um, reheating rate feel like, and uh, and whether or not someone wants to just have a gas grill on their back patio. You know, these are all challenges that you all, I'm sure face far more regularly than I do, but this is some of my, my experience.
1: Okay, um, th- thank you for the comments. And again, I'm not trying to get anyone, I'm not trying to play gotcha, but um, just, uh, just trying to get a better understanding um, as far as, new construction. I could see how that might be concerning for retrofitting existing construction but I don't I, I guess I'm still not sure um, why we would con- you know allow gas for new construction yep mr Brown
4: yes sir Brown's um, CPD. so some of the questions that need to be answered have to do with um, not just the infrastructure from an electrification perspective uh, also have to do with uh, sources of, of the materials, uh, making sure that the supply chain is adequate. Uh, also making sure that we have competent and trained contractors uh, that can actually install the work so that the end user is the owner um, is, is left with a high quality and, and functioning product. Um, and it does take some time for those to come to fruition. Um, I can speak to it outside of Denver because obviously it's not here yet. I believe there are uh, probably others in the room that might be able to speak to the implementation aspect and getting everyone up to speed um, so that we do a better job planning and so that it can be successfully implemented versus stumbling over ourselves by trying to do it too quickly.
1: Okay. Thank you. I know there are a few people still in the queue. So thank you, Council President.
0: Thank you very much. We've got about 14
5: minutes and three folks in the queue. Councilwoman Kanich. Thanks. I'm gonna bridge um, with a couple questions that are intended to bridge us towards that idea of next steps. And I guess I will start by answering the question. The reason we didn't, I think, run an amendment to immediately implement was because we didn't have a transition plan. We were literally set to implement a brand new building code, and we hadn't done broad stakeholder input with either builders or our homeowners. So it is, I think, the necessary path personally for our climate, but we didn't have that plan in place for the timeline at which the rest of the code was ready to go. So that's my answer for why. And so I suggested, along with Councilman Clark, this committee meeting. So thank you to all of our presenters. So my question for Eric, and you can get back to us, is how many new homes subject to this code we typically bring online a year? Do you know that number today?
4: the quantity of new new residential construction on yes. a new basis? I don't know the number off of my head. But Can I you
5: bring do. us maybe the last five years of data mm-hmm. just so that we have a sense of the volume we're talking about? Because I think that would be relevant for transition planning. Mm-hmm and whether we have any projections going forward, whether there'd be any reason to believe that that volume would significantly change, for example, right? Like, is it significantly going to drop off because something significantly is done at, you know, Central Park, for example, or some, something mm-hmm. significantly done. So it's, it's actually gonna slow down. We ab- obviously have interest rates rising. So I mm-hmm. actually think we have some reason to think it's likely to slow down, mm-hmm. but who am I? Um, so I think that having some sense of volume is important for us to know what we're talking about. Obviously, um, Crested Butte did not have a long um, uh, transition time. Mm-hmm. I do think we might need more time than they did. Um, but I, I think volume matters. I think my question for Sean, um, there were two Sean's. So I think our Washington State Sean was, did Washington State have any supply chain issues? Me, and it, it sounds to me like Washington State was not a straight up electrification requirement. It was this point system that steered people in that direction. And I'm not clear the volume. So you mentioned this sampling. So 178 does not sound like a very large number for an entire state. But regardless of maybe we don't have a lot of time. So I actually don't think we have time for you to explain the entire policy regime. But did they have any supply chain issues, I guess, is the question. Or do you know of anyone in the nation who did turn on an electrification requirement in a major city, and some of them are still phasing in, so it might be too soon, but do we know of anyone who has had supply chain issues with these electrification requirements?
6: Sure, we don't know of anyone who had supply chain issues due to their requirement. Washington did have supply chain issues, but that was due to the pandemic. Um, They made their transition before then.
5: Okay, that's helpful, thank you. And then I guess what I'd like to say is, as a follow-up point, once we get your numbers, obviously then we can have a more intentional conversation, right? About what supply chain might look like, obviously looking at that. And then my question, I guess, for the other Sean would be how to stay engaged in that conversation about supply. And I'll leave it to my colleagues then with the time remaining. And, and I might wanna chime in again about other next steps, depending okay. where my colleague, Councilman Clark takes us. Thanks. Perfect. Councilman Sawyer.
12: Thanks, Madam President. Um, thank you guys. This was very, very interesting. Um, I think it's a worthwhile conversation to us to continue to have, um, but I'm wondering whether there was any discussion around, um, residential in terms of, you know, any, I always think in terms of the zoning code, right? So uh, anything in like the SUTU TU, um, RH zoning versus um, multifamily or multi-use zoning in particular um, and whether there's numbers and data around that piece of information.
4: Is Is your question in addition to Councilwoman, can you just question about the volume and then segregating it by, by zone district?
12: I would like to see it by okay. zone district because I think um, I've lived in a lot of places and a lot of houses. Uh, I've had gas stoves, mm-hmm. I've had electric stoves. I personally believe that gas stoves cook better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that many, many people who are residents of our city agree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we even heard testimony about that today because uh there are people who are electrifying their homes but still asking for gas grill in their backyard. Right. So um, and I understand that 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 kind of transition um to all electric might take time. I'm also not convinced that a transition to all electric is the answer. Mm-hmm. And so I'm asking for a little bit, that data that you're going to get for Councilwoman Kniech, mm-hmm. um, if it can be broken out a little bit better to be able to um, see, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in SH, in SU districts um, versus RH districts mm-hmm. that, you know, what does that look so we've got one hundred thirty-seven thousand single-family homes in Denver. What does that footprint for um, gas look like versus, you know, I don't know how many RH homes we have or TU homes we have, but um, it would just I think be valuable to actually understand on a granular level what those numbers look like, um, and and then in terms of the I think. Um, one of our other uh, people who testified mentioned it—the um, cost of the cost savings that comes from not having to run the black pipe like through a multi-unit building and things like that. I just—I would really, I think, agree with Councilmember Kanich um, that that granular information. Because I'm not at all opposed to this, um, except for maybe the stove piece. Um, but I think we need a lot more information and data on. Um, what it actually looks like kind of I think the easiest way to do it would be break it out by by zone districts. So thanks. We can do that. Thanks, Madam President.
0: Thank you. Councilman Clark. Uh
3: thank you, Council President. Um I, first I just want to say thank you to everybody for um, you know uh when originally we were going through this asking to get this together I really appreciate all the time and effort to get this presentation together it's very helpful um, I'm glad to see that we're having a um uh you know really digging into this um um and I'm hoping that the council members who couldn't be here for this meeting today will watch this back and get up to speed um uh, since they weren't able to be here but um just as a quick refresher if you wouldn't mind um because we're talking about a very in our world sometimes you talk about residential versus commercial and it means a different thing than it means in the building code so we're really talking about single family homes talking about duplexes talking about some row houses but when it comes to multifamily when it comes to all those other types we are already on a pathway to full electrification and so could you just cap could you remind everybody the timelines on that because i I think that that gets lost in this and, and especially in sometimes our our taxable definition of residential versus commercial is that that we've already approved that we're already moving towards electrification um, on those building types and those residential units We're really the only piece that we're talking about here that has the potential for a change would be for us to 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 either be more aggressive or less aggressive or marry up you know the timeline on single new single family new duplex or new row house because the rest of it's already on a timeline for that
4: right correct that that is correct councilman clark so we would this conversation and, and what we're discussing would just be the single family the duplex the the small row homes. the language that is in our codes today and which will be forthcoming based on the energized denver ordinances that have passed over the past uh, this point year and a half or so um, do have thresholds for existing and for new commercial construction. When I say commercial, that does include the multifamily aspects as well. And so there are uh, there's a threshold that actually just passed on March 1st, which had to do with parity and permitting. Um, that there's so there's not a mandatory electric uh, component associated with that, uh, but it makes the process equivalent between gas and electric when it comes to uh, replacing uh, uh, um, equipment and things like that in 2024 and 2025 and in 2027 there are additional thresholds that come into play from an electric perspective within each one of those there are what i would say intentionally and reasonable uh, allowances um for mostly for for existing buildings for short. Um, and then when it comes to new construction, we'll get to those thresholds in, is it 2027? Katrina, is threshold for new? Is that correct? you wanna come up and clarify? Yes. <laughs> Go ahead.
13: Eric, can correct me if I get this wrong? Katrina Manigan, Director of Buildings in CASER. And uh, I think the most uh, key point to answer your question is about the new multi-family buildings and the building code you all adopted on January 9th requires or bans gas furnaces and gas water heaters from all new commercial construction which includes all commercial buildings all multi-family buildings on January 1st of 2024. And those are the same two system types that are often found in single-family homes and duplexes the furnaces and the water heaters and there are some exceptions within the commercial code but i think that's the really key date is that we've already taken this step to ban gas furnaces and ban gas water heaters in new commercial and, and that's on january 1st, january 1st 2024
3: january 1st of 2024 right so that's uh, i think that that's that's just uh, another important reminder that as we're tackling this and and we're talking about that some of this we've already done and the question is do we continue to allow this disparity that exists in lots of places in our code that single-family homes um, get to do things differently all over the place right even compared to duplex language when it comes to garages and stuff like that do we continue that disparity or is it time especially with the, uh, you know the um the crisis that we're facing when it comes to climate change to make sure that we get those in line Uh, because on January 1st of 2024 there will be residential units being built that cannot use gas appliances for space and water heat and yet currently you could still build a, a giant less efficient single family home than these efficient Apartments, um, and you could also be doing it with all kinds of gas appliances that are not allowed in those apartments. And so, I just wanted to to, to stress that as well. But um, really, thank you. I know that this is not a conversation that we're going to get done today, and 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 um, we're you know making sure starting and getting everybody up to speed. I think is a really important piece um, of the work that we embarked on when the climate action task force came together and really put that roadmap together for how do we live up. To all the big things that we say about how we want to tackle climate change as a city, but how do we, it's the nuts and bolts of how we put it in there. And I think this is a critical piece of that. And I think this was such a great kickoff to that to have um, all the expertise in the room that we have um, to answer questions, to walk us through people actually building single family homes today with these systems in there who can speak to them was a very I think important to this conversation and so i just wanted i know it was uh, a lot of uh, time and effort went into this and wanted to say thank you thank you council president
5: thank you so much uh, Councilman councilman thanks so in terms of thinking about next steps there are a couple paths one path is that a council member you know decides to sponsor an ordinance and does all the things they do to just rally people and start to you know create a process but This is a really complex and and truthfully really technical area. And I think it would be really difficult for this to be a council. And we also have, you know, people running for election and people termed out. So I don't know that that's the best path. In a city manager form of government, which honestly, this would be the way that, you know, in a city manager form of government, a council would direct an agency and say, we'd like you to come back to us and design a stakeholder process or design a timeline and tell us, how you might have more conversation about that. I mean, I rarely say this, but that would be kind of a cool thing to do if we were to you know, be able to say, we'd really like to have you do that work and tell us how best to do it and, and let us you know, kick the tires a little bit and say, we like this piece of that plan and maybe we'd like a little more of this or that. I mean, I'm thinking about What did Crested Butte learn about how it did? It's like, I would love to see a demo of all the new cooking. I've used an old electric stove and I don't love it, but I've also used a new induction stove and it's great. It actually works better than my electric stove, right? So there's a difference between electric stove technologies. And I can imagine something fun that shows our community the technology in real life. I can imagine something, you know, I know that I've been just full disclosure, retrofitting my house with a heat pump. And I've dealt with contractors who think they have to put in a furnace. And I've dealt with contractors who know what they're doing, right? And so the contractor community is split. Those who know what they're doing and those who put in heat pumps with backup furnaces. So I, I think you can imagine a process that engages both sets of stakeholders I can, you know, knowing our our timeline for multifamily, you could imagine a timeline that does some phasing and puts this out to 25, which feels long, but maybe not if you're transitioning multifamily, right? You could imagine proposing some timelines. And so I guess I'm putting this out to my colleagues to say, we don't have the power as a city manager to direct an agency, but if we wanted to ask, we could, we could we could do a couple of things we're running out of time now, but could do we want to schedule another budget and policy do we want to have some offline conversations and you know I don't know Councilman Clark, do you and I want to follow up again and take feedback from our colleagues and agree to at least engage in a follow up meeting I mean what what how do we keep the conversation going. And is there a role the agency is willing to play in continuing to do what you did today, which is do some of this work in a way that, you know, you guys are the technical experts and you brought together a great team today. I think you are in the best position to lead on something so technical, but what do colleagues think? Councilman
3: Clark, yeah, I totally agree, and especially um, you know, at the beginning of the presentation, you talked about you know you pull one string in the code, and it touches a million different places, and well, we ultimately get to approve that code. We might not be the best surgeons of that code, and so I would love if um, if you all could take some time to think about like what uh, that question is, is knowing that we don't have we don't have the ability to say hey this is what we want and, and direct you right because of uh, our form of government but knowing this is where we're heading I, I mean and where we, these adopted plans are saying you coming back to us and saying hey you know the surgery that it would take or the things that it would take this is kind of a timeline where we could get there I, I, I really like that I don't know if you all like that but would love don't want, need to put you on the spot right now but would love you to take some time go back talk it through and, and maybe be able to propose to us if there is kind of that more collaborative approach to us all moving towards that place rather than us going in with a blunt instrument and saying, "Hey, this is what we want," and it wasn't in there. So can we just smash this in here? And you being like, "Oh man, like what what all what all does that touch that now we have to fix?" So I I, I really like that idea.
0: Great, thank you so much. I think we've got um, at least a few council members interested in the follow up, Eric with your team. Um, just want to thank uh, Sean Denniston, Mel Yama, Keith Sean Lamons, uh, Nick Jacobs and Jim Crook. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, that's all our time for budget and policy. We look forward to the next one and uh, see you at council in less than 30 minutes. Thank you everyone.